Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 119th video cast, 109th podcast for the week ending January 28th, 2022. Uh, what a wild week, to put it mildly. But uh, I, I waited till the end of the week until the end of the, the session today because I wanted to see how we could finish the week with some strength. Uh, and we'll go into a lot more. But what's most interesting is here were the sectors today. I want you guys to take a look at this. And gals, um, tech was the top performer, uh, followed by biotech up 3.47%, followed by the NASDAQ up 3.14%. The worst performers were energy and banks. So we've been saying that was gonna happen for the last few weeks. It's starting to happen. Uh, when everyone wants it, help them out. We've, we've taken down our energy and banks uh, materially in the last few weeks in order to fund our uh, new big position in biotech. And we white knuckle added a lot of biotech this week and this morning in particular. It was like, oh, but it was that exact same feeling. I'll never forget going into the 2016 election, uh, the market just kept dropping and dropping and dropping into the election. Uh, and uh, we kept buying uh, small cap, Russell 2000, IWM call options, and just kept buying and buying and buying them. And as soon as the election was done and the uncertainty was in the rearview mirror, those things went up. It was one of the best trades ever. So um, so that's how I felt buying biotech this morning, but uh, it, it's been incredible, and I think that's going to be a home run here. So we'll talk about that in greater detail, but this was just huge because everything that everyone was saying about what should happen from the Fed's hawkishness, the exact opposite happened. The old saying, the market is designed to fool most of the people most of the time, and I could just see it. All of the people that you hear from that now love energy and banks, they were the same ones when we were talking about them in 2020 and pounding the table, they were the same ones saying, you're crazy to buy banks, you're crazy to buy energy, you know, we don't need those anymore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Tell the Europeans, why don't they run their, uh, why are they so worried about their natural gas? Why don't they just run on windmills and solar panels? I mean, what's the problem? So, um, so we'll talk a little bit about that and, and uh, you know, that, that goes in line with it's going to be a long transition and yes, we make incremental steps and it's good to do that, but uh, it's naive to think that you're not going to use fossil fuels for the next 10 or 20 years uh, and there's money to be made. That said, that's now starting to get priced in and we're going to talk a lot about how to make money in the business is fishing where other people aren't. And when they all come over because they see you catching a lot of fish, uh, it's time to, to cut bait, pull up anchor, and move to the next uh, area where no one is. And, and uh, we're going to talk about what we've been doing in that context in the last uh, five or six sessions. So uh, first off, let's do the media spots real quick. I'd like to thank Ellie Terrett and Liz Clayman for having me on the Clayman Countdown on Tuesday. We're going to go into that in detail because I made a pretty bold call there. And Liz was like, you sure you're putting yourself out there? I'm like, yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's worked out so far. So uh, the key thing that I said was uh, it was Tuesday afternoon. The market was kind of moderate. It was vacillating between up and down. And I said that... Um, 
you know, the, you're not going to get a 20% correction in the S&P without a recession. You're not going to get a recession without a yield curve inversion. We're, we've been flattening, but we're not close to a yield curve inversion. And then I talked about the washout. I said yesterday, which was Monday, we had a put call ratio at 1.26. Everyone was buying insurance while the house was on fire at the exact wrong time. The time to buy insurance is when there, you know, there's no fire in sight and everything is calm. Uh, the VIX had gone up to 38 uh, and the AAII sentiment survey was down to 21% bullish. I said those are three indicators of market inflections. I think the, uh, I think the vast majority of the pain is in the rearview mirror at this point. And she said, wow, Tom just put himself out there. Well, that, you know, we've held the line and that, that was a good thing. So here's the week. Uh, that was Monday. That was Tuesday on the claim and countdown. We held those uh, uh, lows from Monday. We said that the, the, the uh, major pain was in the rearview mirror. And now we're taking off into the close, which is really, really exciting. Uh, to see how the how the uh, market closed this week. So again, thanks to Liz and Ellie for having me on Monday. Uh, we'll talk in more detail about that in particular as we get to the article of the week. Uh, want to thank Taylor Clothier for having me on Yahoo Finance with Alexis Christophorus with Adam Shapiro, Karina Mitchell. Also want to thank Sarah Drammer who helped produce the segment. I appreciate you guys having me on. We'll talk about that segment in the article of the week. Then I was, uh, that was on Tuesday, uh, that was on Wednesday, I was on Yahoo. Also Tuesday night after the claim and countdown, I was on CGTN America with Rochelle Akufo. I wanna thank Rochelle and I Zing for having me on. I is the producer. And uh, we talked about the Activision Blizzard deal with Microsoft and Microsoft earnings. Um, also want to thank uh, Akshay Chinchalkar and Abhishek Vishnoy for including me in their article on Bloomberg this week. Uh, the trading, and, and the, again, I was calling you know, a short-term uh, bottom on, on Monday, saying that the trading session on Monday had a feel of short-term capitulation, said Thomas Hayes. Uh, the key signals for a trade uh, for this, the key signals for a tradable bottom to be confirmed will come from earnings of technology companies. Uh, I had said in the email, uh, IBMs were strong; they beat on revenue big time. And then Microsoft, uh, we needed to see as well as Apple, which we did, and uh, and we've put we I think we've put it in the short term bottom here. Uh, and some market-friendly Federal Reserve guidance on balance sheet reduction was the other thing we would need. I, that's the other thing I said on on Liz is I said Liz the the, the the pain is in the rearview mirror, but we need to see two things, a continuation of strong tech earnings, Microsoft reports tonight, that's critical, those turned out to be great, thank God. Uh, and the second thing is um, uh, a, a bit of a walk back on the balance sheet uh, quantitative tightening, which we did get on Thursday, and we're gonna go into detail in the article of the week. So uh, the same thing with Bloomberg. Uh, Reuters wanna thank Bansari Kamdar and Devik Jain for including me in their article. Uh, yesterday, um, and I guess this was before quantitative tightening. The market has priced in the rate hikes, but they've not completely priced in quantitative tightening because we don't know what it's going to be and we don't know the impact. So that was before the Fed meeting, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that was in the morning. And then uh, earlier in the week, uh, we were talking about uh, oh, it was the anniversary of the meme trade. I said, as rates rise, the present value of future cash flows diminishes, and it takes some of the speculation out of the market. So um, 
there was a period where there was all this free stimulus money and low rates and margin availability, and that's coming to an end. Uh, it's interesting, Lydia Moynihan over at The Post did an article this week, uh, you should check it out, just Google New York Post Lydia Moynihan, uh, about how all of these uh, young folks who were home with stimulus checks and Robinhood accounts that were gambling on meme stocks, uh, you know, knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing, they're now moving, uh, they're finding, there was some data that they're all moving to gambling sites now that sports are back. So, you know, the mentality has stayed the same. And that's probably a good thing that probably have better odds uh, gambling on football games than gambling on stocks that they don't they don't do research on. Now, that's not to say and that's not a criticism because everyone comes into the business uh, not knowing anything, making mistakes, blowing up a few accounts, uh, uh, personal accounts and and then learning the game over time. Uh, That's a good thing. And the 10 percent or so that get the bug and learn how to do it properly and do proper research and know what they own and do the work and not try to get rich overnight, uh, they'll become our next generation of portfolio managers and leaders in the industry. Uh, So it is a very positive thing when you get those swells. Uh, But um, the ones that are, you know, for them, it could be, you know, betting on the Jets or or betting on uh, GME, you know, it's probably better they bet on the Jets. They they probably know more about the players and they probably take more interest than just, uh, um, you know, hoping for the best. Um, Okay, now let's move on to the uh, questions of the week. Ask me anything questions. We've got a ton of them. Uh, First off from Brady Todaro. Uh, Tom, two questions. I'm a shareholder in Starbucks. With the unionizing of a few stores recently, will this hurt them in the long run if it continues to spread? Raising wages and benefits, etc., while dealing with inflation. Um, Chipotle raised prices to pay its workers more and its consumers seem to agree with this. I'm not sure how much people will tolerate raising coffee prices when they realize they can save money by buying coffee at the grocery store and making it at home or finding another local coffee shop if they raise their prices to deal with their workers unionizing and demanding more from them. I feel the image Starbucks has been trying to promote has only attracted that type of worker, which has led to its workers pushing Starbucks to become more and more progressive when in reality they just make coffee. I worked at UPS from 2011 to 2012 and they told me 55 cents of every dollar went to labor i'd be curious to see in future earnings report how much starbucks spends on labor and other benefits because of its unionized stores and if workers will go on strike when negotiating contracts break down when all people want is their coffee um okay then then secondly he says will visa mastercard and american express i own shares of axp struggle in the future because if businesses stop accepting their cards they don't have to pay merchant processing fees this is their main source of revenue and other fintech companies could produce a card that doesn't charge to process the payment functioning like a debit card and or pay with cryptocurrency would love uh, love the podcast i listen to it every week and read your newsletter thank you for that brady your advice has helped me minimize my losses and build wealth thank you so much brady Tadara. well thank you that's very kind of you to say i put a lot of effort into this and uh it's nice to get the get the feedback um i appreciate that so uh as far as it goes with starbucks um you know the key thing here is that someone sent me a question about 
companies trying to uh, trying to be woke or something like that. I mean, look, the bottom line is Starbucks is not going to destroy their business to appear progressive or to appear like they're pro-union because they're not. Uh, it's a money-making business. They answer to shareholders. You know, if you look at Nike, which is a, a very woke company and progressive company, uh, that's marketing. Uh, that's really what it comes down to because you got to just think about where, where do their sneakers come from. Uh, if they were really progressive and they were really woke, they would have people in the U.S. Uh, um, uh, manufacturing the sneakers at high wages in union shops and uh, and they would just take less profits because it's better to spread the wealth all around but they don't do that instead they spend millions of dollars on commercials to pretend that that's their image because it resonates well and it sells more sneakers so um, as far as Starbucks goes you know they have a certain image that they project and the public likes it and that's what uh, they're going to continue to do but you know I, I traveled to uh, Key West this uh, last week and you walk into the, uh, you asked about American Express, you walk into the American Express Centurion Lounge at LaGuardia. There are these two fancy, rest, uh, fancy machines on the counter by the bar. And you walk up to it and it says, you know, cafe latte with oat milk, cafe latte with uh, dairy milk, um, you know, espresso, cappuccino decaf, cappuccino, super cappuccino, espresso, blah, blah, blah. And you just push a button and it comes out in the cup and it's fancy and it's high quality. So the more stores that unionize, uh, the more of those type of machines are going to be there. And there'll be one person behind the counter and they'll just press a button and it will go. You know, the, the purpose of unions, which do serve a, a, a purpose, was for skilled labor who spent 10 years in an apprenticeship to learn a, a skilled task whether it's pipe fitting or electricians or certain high value construction, uh, HVAC, um, you know, these specialized skills that take a long time to learn, that you work in an apprenticeship so that when you finally have the skill, your wages are protected. Otherwise, the employers would just say, well, they're, they're screwed. They can't go to work anywhere else. We'll just pay them whatever we want. And that collective bargaining for, for skilled specialized labor you know, does make a lot of sense because if you devote that much time to uh, develop a skill, on the one hand, it'll be partially scarce in the market, so you'll be able to command the value that you deserve with or without a union. But uh, on the other hand, uh, that that certainly makes sense. And to some degree, uh, it made sense in the early days of the um, uh, assembly line with automobiles when it was more skilled, now it's more automated. But, uh, you know, you see Tesla is doing just fine. They just, rather than unionize, they just pay their workers uh, above market rate and they seem to be doing just fine uh, that way. So um, I think what you'll find with Starbucks, as, uh, as much as they want to project a certain image, uh, they are a business and they do answer to owners. And um, what you'll find is they'll either, uh, it will lead to more automation. So the net effect will, will not be that workers will get higher wages. Uh, it, the net effect will be that there'll be a lot less workers. So, the, so it will force them to automate more quickly uh, if more and more stores drop. The other thing that they'll do if it gets out of control is stores that organize, they'll just shut them down. And then the next store will think twice before they, before they organize. But uh, that is in the context. I mean, look, at the end of the day, 
there has to be fairness. So it's not like unions are good or bad or whatever. Um, and it's my understanding that Starbucks does pay well above average. It's my understanding that for entry-level workers, they can apply to get free college paid for, uh, online college to get a degree while they work. So I think Starbucks has really gone out of their way, at least they've projected, to pay workers uh, well above average and to provide them ancillary benefits like health care and different things that you don't normally see in entry-level jobs. And um, so, so, you know, if there is unionization, I, I would say the electricians and the plumbers and uh, the specialized construction workers and the cement layers and, and all of these people that have specialized skills, they're always going to be successful. They probably should have unions and, and it's worked well and they should be paid uh, for investing that amount of time. But if I can go into Starbucks and learn the job in six hours, uh, how to make, you know, 18 different types of coffees and call them fancy names and double charge, um, I, I don't have that much value add other than my smile and being friendly and having a good attitude. Uh, and in that context, the idea of like organizing, there's no incentive for the store to negotiate, for, for the company to negotiate with that uh, in a material way. They'll just shut down that unit and then, you know, they'll just shut down units and, and, until they can come to some type of agreement. Like we're not willing to unionize on a widespread basis, but we are willing to uh, obviously address uh, increasing labor costs and uh, uh, cost of living with regard to inflation, come up with some fair agreement that makes sense for all parties interested. And then the workers will have a choice. I mean, in a market where there's 10 and a half million job openings, uh, the workers are really in control uh, with or without a union. They can say, look, I provide XYZ value. If you don't pay me $25 an hour or wh whatever they're demanding, uh, $30 an hour, I'll just go next door because there's you know six help wanted signs down the street. So I, I do think uh, workers have the leverage in terms of uh, asking for pay raises and they'll probably get them. I'm not sure uh, outside of specialized labor and even like teachers have specialized labor, they're successful in having their unions because um, they, you know, again, invest five or 10 years to develop the skill and there's a lot of value add. In those type of specialized areas, you know, unions can work. Uh, but in, in a type of, you know, business or job where you can go in and in six or 12 hours learn the business, you know, from A to Z, uh, it's, you know, very easily replaceable, um, players unions work because, you know, you, you invest your whole life to, you know, to a particular sport, to a particular skill, you add a tremendous amount of value. Again, that's another area where unions work. So it's not anti-union. It's, um, it's, it's discerning the justified value for unionizing for a particular skill set versus, um, you know, the overriding idea. So I, I hope that comes across. The, the point is it's not going to be a problem for Starbucks. Um, it's, it's a nice headline in the short term. Amazon's dealing with it a little bit, but they'll, they'll get it done. They're just going to raise wages and, and, and it'll be fine. And if, and if it becomes too organized, they'll just shut down a bunch of places. And then, you know, workers that like working there that don't want to take their skills somewhere else and get more money elsewhere um, will, will probably, you know, say, look, let's just come to a reasonable agreement with them without unionizing because they seem to be shutting down all the stores that are unionizing. And I don't think it'll get to that. I think people are just going to pay up for labor because it makes sense. Um, okay, Visa American Express MasterCard. 
Uh, look, that, that was the same reason they were telling us not to buy banks in 2020 because DeFi was going to take over the world and who needs all these branches and et cetera. Things take a long time to change. I mean, look at the real estate brokers. They're making 6%, uh, you know, uh, 100 years later. It makes zero sense in theory. Uh, but in, in reality, that structure is in place. People accept it and therefore it persists. Uh, many people have tried to do online real estate brokerage. It hasn't succeeded yet. Maybe, you know, the Jeff Bezos of, online, of real estate brokerage will come in and figure out a, a way to do it with uh, smart contracts. But again, it's not going to change overnight because it's embedded. And the same is the case with American Express Visa and uh, MasterCard. So it's not something you have to think about on a five-year time, time horizon or a three-year time horizon. But it could evolve and you keep your eye on. Nothing is set and forget in life. You know, you got to keep your eye on everything. But uh, you saw American Express's earnings. Uh, they're on top of it. As far as MasterCard, I have a friend who works there. Um, they are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not asleep at the wheel. Let's just put it that way. Um, and um, so thank you for that. Uh, next, Ben, first name only. Uh, Tom, you mentioned something while a while ago regarding registering BABA differently with one's broker. Does this apply to simply buying BABA through an online broker? Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can either, we own uh, the Hong Kong shares 9988. So we originally bought it, bought Baba. Uh, what, by the way, Munger owns Baba, so it's not going to be a big issue. There was um, uh, a legislation uh, put out, proposed in Congress this week that put a little pressure on the shares about moving it from like three-year timeline to two-year timeline if they don't comply. So that's why I didn't want to think about that anymore. So I just switched them out to Hong Kong shares, uh, it was eight for one. I can always switch it back. It's a small transaction fee to do it. Uh, it has no impact on valuation, but I don't have to worry about uh, the possibility of delisting. And even if you own the BABA and it got delisted tomorrow, they'd probably give you the Hong Kong shares anyway. So uh, not a big deal, but you could do it with interactive brokers. You can probably do it with most brokers. Depending on the brokerage, you'll either get the Hong Kong shares uh, if they can do the currency, which would be 9988, or you'll get uh, a placeholder, uh, I think it's B-A-B-A-F is uh, the Hong Kong placeholder, which is also fungible and can be uh, transferred for shares. Uh, two, has Baba, Baba bottomed or might 108.70 not hold? I think it's bottomed. I, I think it retested this week on that week news. There was uh, two things this week that put pressure on China stocks. One, was there you know, rumors on the trading desk, which I think are unfounded, that SoftBank is blowing up because, um, uh, what's his name, Sergio Marcion or something like, the guy who ran Sprint is leaving and he wants a billion dollars. And um, uh, Ma uh, Masayoshi-san has a 25% position in Alibaba. It's their biggest position. So there's fear that all of their venture um, investments are going bad and therefore they'll have to sell Alibaba to get liquidity and there was you know structural issues and I think by the way uh, there were structural issues throughout the market this month as far as tech all the people that were overweight these high multiple uh, no earning stocks in the last four weeks had to unwind and people who had leverage to crypto had to unwind so there were probably a lot of blow-ups that's why you saw all the volatility. I think that's coming to a, a head here. I think that that's largely in the rearview mirror. Um, 
uh, and nothing changed fundamentally. I mean, look, all I want to know is what was their return on invested capital last year, the year before, the year before that, the year before that, and the year before that. And if it's above, if it's above market return on capital, uh, and they're compounding at you know 15 to 20 percent every single year, uh, so they've got COVID last year, maybe it went down to 15 percent. Uh, that's the type of business I want to be in above average. And by the way, if you can buy that, which you rarely, rarely can you ever buy a business that's compounding capital over 15% a year at a below market multiple. And here you could buy it at 13, 14 times uh, next year's and much lower multiple than that a couple years out, maybe high single digits. If you look at a couple years out estimates with, with uh, continued top line growth, yeah, it goes down from 30 to 20. Uh, earnings, you know, goes from 20 to 15. But, uh, you know, they've got a moat. They're expanding internationally. So, um, you know, it, does it go to 107 before it goes to 200 and 280? I, I don't know. Don't care. I don't think so. But, um, you know, uh, it is what it is. Um, possible catalyst for Baba to move higher. I think you're seeing it already. We're going to cover a lot of the stimulus that, um, that uh, the Chinese government. Look, the, the number one stimulus is is trend. Opinion follows trend. So the government is now realizing they went too far and they are, they are literally throwing the kitchen sink in terms of stimulus. Uh, they're now telling, basically telling the portfolio managers in the country, uh, basically we, we effed everything up. If you don't buy the stocks, we're going to you know, take you out back behind the barn and kill you. Uh, so all the mutual fund managers now have to buy the stocks that they destroyed with their uh, overzealous uh, regulation and heavy hand. But, um, but it is what it is. I mean, you know, this happens every three to four years. It's, it's painful in the short term. It creates an unbelievable opportunity. And you just got to sit through. And we'll cover some of that this week in terms of, uh, you know, under the surface, you know, when you, when you got the fish hooked, uh, that fish doesn't want to come up to the boat and, and no one's going to give you free money. They're going to, they're going to give you some white hairs before they let you make a multi-bagger. And that's just the way the world works. Otherwise everyone would be, you know, super wealthy. Uh, and the fact of the matter is most people get spooked because they don't know, they don't know what they own and they're impatient. They try to get rich overnight or they haven't done the homework. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, if you've listened long enough, uh, you're not in that camp or my message wouldn't appeal to you. Buy high quality when it's on sale, be patient, ignore the short-term noise, and double your money, and then when everyone wants it, lay it off and go, go back and do it again and find out what no one wants and what everyone's down on that's high quality, that's compounding capital, buy it when no one wants it, when they all come, help them out, give them what they want, do it again. That's, you know, it's not rocket science. This, this business, there's a... It, there's there's probably an inverse correlation with IQ when you when you get above 145 or 140. Uh, you know the, the the folks you see at you know 150 160 they tend to do horribly because they have no um, a kind of emotional fortitude and thoughtfulness and uh, any I'm sure there are exceptions but nonetheless. Uh, good questions here, Ben. All right. Um, Last week, you shared the size of your position in biotech. Please share your current BABA. BABA, we got up to close to 20%, and biotech is now close to 20%, if not at 20%. We, we added a bunch this morning. 
so so those are you know super high conviction we have sector risk with biotech but we don't have single stock risk it's a very large basket and uh of stock and de embedded derivatives uh so it will uh it will really be um it's it's broad exposure and it, and it's uh it's very constructive and we feel very good about it and uh and we're very happy that it was one of the top performers of the day so uh the tide may be turning but one day doesn't make a market so we'll take it as it comes um we likely won't be adding a lot more if we get further weakness we'll just ride it out uh that's a, a very strong position so um okay when is the build back better legislation scheduled to be voted on uh it's not i mean there it basically blew up uh, if you look at this article, uh, they're going to try to pass it in different smaller chunks. Uh, but it's unlikely in an election year when they need to raise money to get reelected, which is their number one job, that they're going to be screwing the, the pharma companies that give them money to get reelected. Um, so uh, the end line here was from Manchin. He said, uh, we'll just be starting from scratch wherever we start. So here we are. Uh, to nine months away from the election and they're going to start from scratch on the Build Back Better. I mean, low probability of them getting uh, anything materially, materially significant done. Um, but they may get a couple of small things here and there uh, that would make sense that people can uh, agree on. But, you know, with inflation numbers backward looking as they are, they're very worried about inflation going into the election, which they should be, uh, and uh, passing something out of the ordinary or excessive uh, would, um, at this point, hurt their chances of re-election because the market will start to uh, anticipate higher inflation and expectations are the name of the game when it comes to, to inflation, uh, and they don't want that going into the election. So, you know, maybe a few hundred billion there, a few hundred billion here, uh, there, etc. But uh, I, I doubt they do anything material with the drug things. I, I think that now is the time. Uh, the, the, the vast, the key reason that biotech was down was the same reason that tech is down. Uh, and it's close to one in the same here. And that is because the fear of interest rates. But when you actually go back and look at the data quantitatively, um, it's not a foregone conclusion that every tech stock does poorly or every biotech stock does poorly or emerging markets for that matter do poorly just because interest rates go up. And uh, in the first 12 months towards the latter half, potentially there's a heavier weight as rates really start to move up. But coming up off of zero, you go up 100 basis points, it's not going to have as material of an impact. Uh, particularly for companies earning money, those that were, are earning nothing, they've been taken out to the woodshed and shot. So, um, and, and rightfully so in the short term, some of them will prove to be great businesses down the road, but it's just not the right timing for them. Um, so good question on that. And then, uh, do you have another one, Ben? Oh, what's the latest on the Iran deal and the likely effect on oil prices? Well, yeah, look, people want to get reelected. They, you know, having high inflation... In inflation is directly correlated with consumer sentiment. As long as inflation is not coming down, consumer sentiment is going to be in the toilet. If consumer sentiment is in the toilet, you're not getting reelected. So they got to bring oil down as fast as possible. And it looks like they're going to do that. Uh, this is from the Times of Israel from today. It says U.S. and Iran, quote, in ballpark of possible nuclear deals, says White House official. So, um, 
So yeah, we've taken off a meaningful amount of our energy, not because we think it's going down tomorrow, but because uh, we think that there are other areas that are unfished, that uh, the there are a lot of prize fish still left, and we think that we'll get a much quicker, larger return on our money in a shorter period of time. And then in the meantime, we'll have some, some of our core positions still, still in place for energy and banks. If we get a real pullback in those groups sometime this year, we'll add back with a three-year three outlook. Uh, and if not, we'll be perfectly happy with the moves that we made off of 2020, banked them, and on to the next. So, um, so great questions, very thoughtful and, and obvious to everyone that you've been studying and, and listening to a lot of this. Um, okay. Uh, let's see. I think you sent me multiple. I think you sent me multiple emails. Uh, Okay, Ben, uh, again, another podcast question. Your excellent Thursday website sentiment article included the following regarding two reasons that the IBB, XBI have underperformed, overhanging drug pricing with the BBB uh, legislation unlikely to pass, as well as reduced demand from lower doctor and hospital visits during COVID. Two questions. When is the BBB legislation scheduled to be voted on? We just covered that. Uh, Two, uh, many non-stream media media sources have stated that the negative reactions to the vaccines are very dramatically understated. Of course, the benefits of the vaccine still substantially outweigh the risks. These adverse reactions could cause a continuation of the lower doctor hospital visits for typical maladies in the above quote, but won't these Unfortunate adverse reactions sadly also require pharmaceutical drugs sold by the biotech companies. I, I think you're overthinking this. I mean, the bottom line is just go to an airport. It's filled. People want to do stuff. They're, they're over it. You know, it, everyone's either boosted by now or they've had Omicron and they have some level of immunity and they're happy with that. And it's on to the next. I mean, you know, they, they, they tried to throw a headline out, a new variant. No one cares anymore. Like it's, it's yesterday's news. The cases have rolled over. No one cares. No one talks about it. Uh, on to the next. Um, all right. So uh, a couple other questions. Tom, I want to thank you for your videos. I watch you every week. My question is, what are your thoughts on Teva? Which is, uh, it's not a biotech. It, well, it, it's, a, it's a generic producer. And CXW and GEO, the prison centers, uh, these are all trading near 52-week lows. And earnings are about the same year over year. Thank you, Antonio. Yeah, you want to look at forward earnings. I mean, the, the, uh, the, the prison things are fine. They thought they were going to cancel them. Once Biden came in, he promised to cancel them. He hasn't canceled them. They're probably okay. It'll take a few years for them to, to you know continue to recover. But you'll probably be okay there. Um, Teva got a bad ruling on um, their opioid liability. So that's going to be in the doghouse for a little longer. But I think over the intermediate term, that's something you can accumulate and manage your risk by size because you can't, you can't predict what the courts are going to do per se, but um, they'll find a way through it. And, and I think that's going to be uh, probably a multi-bagger, but that's going to be a three to five year uh, story. Uh, thanks for the video, Tom. Look forward to seeing uh, biotech. Okay. Thanks for a great video cast again. I would like to start a portfolio for my kids. Uh, boy, one-year-old, girl, five years old. So at least 15 to 20 years before they get it. I'd like to know your opinion on what's the smartest to invest in. For example, a single ETF or multiple ETF, stock or combination. 
as it's a long position, I don't really want to buy and trade a lot, just buy and hold. Yeah, and you probably want to do that for tax benefits. Look, you could do two things. The Buffett uh, strategy is the easiest. Just buy a total market ETF. Uh, you could get the Vanguard VTI is a good one. Uh, uh, Vanguard total index VTI. Uh, it's a low cost way you get broader exposure to the market, or you can just get the one that tracks the S&P 500, SPY. Uh, so he's, he suggests to his family 90% of in that, 10% in treasuries, just in case, you know, uh, something crazy happens, you have some cash to weather through in the short term until it recovers. Uh, so that, that would be with a 15 to 20 year horizon, I wouldn't have a horrible time talking about that if you want something a little bit more uh volatility dampening with lower returns you could do like 20 percent uh international etf uh uh like ixus or vxus 20 percent in the uh, us which would be like vti or spy uh you could do 10 percent emerging markets eem or i think vwo uh, 20% in REITs, which would which would be your alternative exposure and partial inflation hedge, uh, IYR or um, VNQ, I think are two options there. And then volatility dampeners, you would pair uh, like TLT and TIP. So treasury inflation protected securities with long bonds. Long bonds uh, give you, uh, appreciate when you have market crashes. So that'll give you cash to put to work in equities when market crashes. Tips will hedge you against uh, inflation. The bottom line is you don't think about any one of them in isolation because no one would buy long bonds with rates so low, but you would buy them as a volatility damper. Uh, but it's going to be a drag on returns just so you sleep better at night. Uh, but you could do one, two, three, four, five. So that's six ETFs uh, and just set it and forget it or rebalance once a year if you're in a um, uh, non-taxable account. Um, again, this is opinion, not advice. Uh, so, uh, you know, go to hedgefundtips.com, click on terms, but I think Buffett's way with that type of time horizon, you know, 90% in a VTI and 10% in cash or bonds treasuries is probably a reasonable way to go. Cause you're going to get the compounding and you're owning 500 of the best businesses in the world. Um, so that's for Kashganja or Bart in Belgium. Thanks. Wow. Belgium. Cool. Uh, okay, Sam Swisher here. Um, hey, Tom, not sure if this is where I'm supposed to ask, to ask me anything questions, but here it is. I was wondering if there was anywhere in particular you look to find solid stocks that are cheap, any specific lists, indexes, websites, sectors. I don't want you to tell me which individual stocks to buy. I need to learn from my own failure, success, and stay disciplined. If the reason people invest is to make... Uh, uh, okay, so uh, one thing I suggest to all new entrants into the market, read every uh, Warren Buffett annual letter, go to berkshirehathaway.com. They're free. Uh, and then um, read um, Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham. And then as far as learn, you've got to learn the stocks. There's no sense in having a list of cheap stocks. There's, you can find, you know, lists from people who are not qualified to give lists any day of the week uh, on the internet. Um, but what I do suggest is uh, go to your library and they probably have an online subscription you can use or they have the the old value line investor surveys they cover about 2000 of the largest companies in america and they're they have a one pager on each company and every day just learn five new companies that's it and within you know a year you'll know basically all 2000 companies 
in a, in a small way. Uh, and then you'll just learn more and more as you learn more and you'll see how they evaluate them. Uh, you'll see what's quote unquote cheap. You'll be able to see how they compound uh, or lose money for shareholders. You'll see if they expand the share count or contract it by doing buybacks. But I, I would start there. That's the best way to learn it. And uh, that's what Warren Buffett did. And back in his day, it was Moody Sheets. But if you see pictures of him nowadays, you'll see the value line binders behind him. He still, he still goes through the value lines all the time. It's simple, but it works. And uh, that would be my greatest suggestion. I think that is the record by three times on the most number of questions we've ever gotten, ask me anything questions. But the feedback I'm getting from everyone is that you learn <laughs> probably more from the questions than, than uh, from me flapping my gums, uh, or at least you like the questions. So that's a good thing. All right, let's go through a lot of stuff this week um, because it's been a, a pretty wild week. Uh, this is from Sarah Ponzek. She used to work at Bloomberg. Uh, the average S&P bull market correction has been 14% throughout history. Over the next 10 months, uh, the index averaged gains of 17.7% and was negative in only one circumstance. So uh, that's the data there. Average over the next three months, seven and a half. Next six months, 12 and a half. Next 12 months, 17 and a half. Which uh, that makes perfect sense. That would put us right at our target uh, for the end of the year, which has been high single digits to low double digits uh, since last last year. We've been talking about it every week. Uh, Ryan Dietrich uh, at LPL, should we fear four or five uh, Fed hikes? Here's all the years that had that many or more and what happened next. So uh, the years that had these hikes, on average in years that you had, well, yeah, this is not the best data source because he's got 1973 and 1974, there were 16 hikes in 1973 and 16 hikes in 1974. And those were the two big down years uh, in this data. But still, on average, uh, the market was up 3.5%. Uh, I would say if you probably backed it out to those years that only had four hikes, uh, if, and we'll be lucky if we get four hikes, because I think inflation will start coming down by the summertime, um, uh, your average is probably double digits, actually. If you look here, 10%, 31%, 1.4%, 12.4%, 13.6%, and one negative 6.2. Yeah, you're probably over double digits for the years that had four hikes. So that would have, would have been a, a better sample there. Um, Ryan puts out another one. Stocks are nearing a correction. This isn't fun. Well, they did correct 12% uh, intraday on Monday. I think they're down. Well, now that's probably only 7% on the year. Um, but it's part of the process. Here's a list of what other corrections since 1980. Up a year later, uh, a year later, up 25% on average and higher 90% of the time. Two years out, it gets even better. So he did all the corrections since 1980. The average was 18.8. One year off the lows, uh, on average, up 28% off the lows. But if you're down 18 on average, so, you know, um, net six or whatever it is. And then two years after up 37%. So it just kind of shows you it's just a normal part of the bull markets. Macro charts put this out uh, in investor sentiment at historic pessimism. We covered this in our weekly thing on the AAII sentiment. But he goes a step further. He says, even in 2008, similar spikes led to violent bear market rallies. And lastly, when investors got this negative, uh, the tech crash was over. So 
um, you'll see all these green dots and you can see how the S&P responded and that, that's where sentiment is right now. And we've covered that the last, uh, in the last article that, uh, that individual investor uh, sentiment was completely flushed out. Um, the other thing you hear is, oh, well, you know, uh, margin debt is at all-time highs, not if you actually measure it properly, which would be against the value of the index. So in absolute terms, if I say, uh, you know, um, car prices are crazy, but I don't adjust them for inflation, uh, I don't really have a good metric. And uh, here, if you measure it against the indices, we're nowhere near the highs before the great financial crisis and uh, people have delevered quite a bit. Uh, margin debt is a percentage of the Wilshire 500. So uh, P-R-O-F-P-L-U-M-99, put that out on Twitter. Uh, Macro Charts put another one out, which uh, I think this is focused on tech. Um, NASDAQ investor sentiment is worse now than it was in March of 2020. That was the uh, bottom that we called uh, in MarketWatch. Uh, the article you can see on our website, I think our article was on March 19th or something and the market bottom the next day, which was pretty damn close, uh, close enough for government work. And it said that's an extremely aggressive bearish posture. Bearishness has fallen to such an extreme that it supports a significant stock market rally. And uh, it shows the level of sentiment, how low it got. And it uh, hasn't, that's, it's lower than where it was at the pandemic. That's mind boggling. Uh, so I think we saw the first um, uh, recovery leg today on that basis. Uh, general market stuff, uh, this, is, this is key. After three weeks of abstinence, absence, stock buybacks are back. Um, there's over $1.2 trillion of stock buybacks. And as companies report and their blackout period, um, uh, unwinds, they will, uh, they're going to be, U.S. corporates are the largest buyer of equity market in 2020 with $975 billion of demand, the best year on record. This is roughly $245 billion per quarter. Uh, the next blackout is March 14th, so they're going to be back in the market. This is between now and March 14th. This is $5.5 billion per day during this stretch. 8% of the S&P is currently in the open window. This matters for the index level as much as not being in the market also mattered. So um, expect the buyback uh, money to start to flow back in. And this is really good research from Goldman uh, via Zero Hedge. So thanks for putting that out uh, to Tyler. Uh, okay, the market in stocks. This is, this is very interesting. This came from Ned Davis through Business Insider. And we put out a lot of these indicators every day, and you guys can look at them or not look at them, but uh, we find them helpful when you look at all of them together. Um, no one is a magic bullet, but they all help in concert. So the bull market in stocks will have a new lease on life if this technical indicator flashes, research firm says. Uh, January decline in stocks has bulls on notice as volatility surges and several technical support levels are broken. Ned Davis suggests investors monitor momentum to gauge if stocks will recover. Another round of breath thrust would signal a, the cyclical bull has a new lease on life. So what is a breath thrust? I pulled up the uh, NASDAQ version of the breath thrust. And what you're going to see here, the most important thing you need to understand is what happens on average when it gets this negative. So we're at negative 55 here. 
the last time uh, it, it only got down to negative 42 during the pandemic. So that just shows you the level of negativity and panic selling and blow ups and that type of thing. Uh, last time it did it before that was right here in December of 2018, the last time that uh, Powell blew up the market and uh, monster rally after that. Uh, the last time before that was 2016. You had a couple more weeks, but by, by, I, on balance, you were at the bottom. The crash had already happened, and then you recovered those high in a few months, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this looks good on that level. Uh, I think we're here, and I guess if this updates, you'll see that this red turned black. I don't know if it, I, I think it wait. Yeah, they wait till 6 o'clock to update it. All right, uh, same thing with the New York Stock Exchange. We'll take a look at that. Um, NYSE breath thrust. It's down at negative 55 during the pandemic. It got to negative 53. A few more days and then it just took off. Same thing in 2018. It's right here at literally at the at the lows. Uh, 2015 at negative 60. It had crashed. It took a few more weeks and it made new highs. Uh, and then what was this? This was May 2012, again, right at the low, and then it took off. So this is a good indicator. It looks like it's uh, at an extreme. We covered that last week, all the NASDAQ ones that were at extreme, and, uh, and they've started to turn. Um, here's another one from today. Again, lower than right at the levels of the pandemic low, and it just ripped from there. So this is the NASDAQ cumulative volume ratio 10-day average. Um, so everything's pointing in the right direction, and today confirmed it, which is why I waited till the close to, uh, to start the, the podcast video cast. Uh, some biotech news. Biogen sells stake in Biosimilars Venture to Samsung Biologics for $2.3 billion. We're going to start to see more and more deals in the biotech, and that's going to help ramp up the space. That's going to be a key catalyst moving forward. The companies that have been stale, they're going to start doing deals. They're going to buy others, buy their stock, uh, do spin outs. They're going to create value because uh, shareholders are going to demand it. Uh, this came from today. Boeing might be making a new plane. That would be really good news. That's from Al Root over at Barron's. We'll see if that rumor proves to be true. Uh, stock's been weak on the um, earnings um, because they had a $5.5 billion charge on the 787. Um, 787 delays, but they did turn free cash flow positive for the first time since early 2019, and they increased production of the 737 MAX to 26 jets a month. They also announced this week an order for four 777 uh, freighters from China Airlines. So that is a big olive branch. I'm sure the Chinese government wouldn't allow that if we weren't moving in that direction, and more importantly, if they didn't need them. And um, uh, that implies that the management promises that the 737 MAX would be up in the air by the end of this month or now very soon. Uh, that should happen. Once that happens, I think the orders are going to pour in and I think the stock is going to finally rip. Uh, but it's been, uh, you know, it's been like watching paint dry, but I think we'll, we'll get a turn here shortly. At least we know what the catalysts are. And, um, and that's that. 
Uh, moving on to China, uh, all of the expected easing into the China National Congress is now starting to happen, has been happening since November and is now accelerating. They're throwing the kitchen sink as it, uh, at it, as I said earlier. PBOC gives clear easing signal with promise to boost growth, central bank to roll out policies to stabilize economy, room for RRR cuts, reserve requirement ratio cut has narrowed debt ratio to be stable. Um, Bank of China, People's Bank of China will open the monetary policy toolbox wider, maintain st stable overall money supply and avoid a collapse in credit. Uh, Deputy Governor Liu Xiaoqing said on Tuesday at a briefing in Beijing. So they're going to do whatever it takes. I mean, the last thing Xi Jinping wants to do is go into a transition meeting uh, with the economy in the toilet, unemployment and uh, protests on the street. Uh, that wouldn't work. So they are they're literally they overstepped last year. Uh, they had to bring some of these companies in, in line, but, you know, they went over the top. Now they got to rein it back. And this, this again, this happens every three to five years and it's nothing new. So China urges banks to boost lending after slow start to 2022. So they want to increase credit. Uh, they're doing everything. Uh, PBOC issued window guidance this month. Central bank is loosening monetary policy, diverging with the Fed, which is why we think it's going to be one of the best trades of the year. Uh, while the rest of the world is tightening, they'll be easing. And, uh, and that story hasn't changed. So um, Pledge to Open Toolbox puts focus on less known options. So they're going to be using deposit rates, FX purchases seen as potential options, structural tools, window guidance could lead to more lending. And they started that last year with $183 billion to small businesses. I'm sure they're just going to open the spigots and they're going to open them quickly. China urges banks to boost property lending on default fears. So they're winding down the Everbank, which we talked about months ago, that they break it up into multiple parts and nationalize some of them. They're, they're doing that. China's seen cutting rates once more before July, analysts say. Okay, so more and more. Uh, China stocks glimpse light at the end of the tunnel. China's central bank is tilting dovish as Fed and most other central banks increasingly lean the other way. Um, China started more uh, eating more aggressively, blah, blah, blah. All right, so similar stuff. They'll, maybe they'll ease up on the COVID stuff or they won't even have to the way the, the curves are rolling over around the world. China's national team rushes to save stocks after bear market signal. This is their local market, CSI 300. Um, so they've got their kind of plunge protection team out there and they're telling all their local mutual fund managers to buy stocks. Uh, and they're going to do what it th t uh, takes. Local media reported seven of China's largest 10 fund management companies, including e-fund management, GF fund management, were putting money to work this week. Um, uh, State-owned Securities Times published a story on the front page that blamed domestic institutional investors for the downdrafted onshore listed stocks for their short-term investment outlooks. <laughs> you, in case you forgot, you shut down a whole uh, multi-billion dollar industry with hundreds of thousands of jobs over the summer. Uh, <laughs> can you blame them for maybe maybe uh, taking a step back and catching their breath for a few months before <laughs> putting money back to work and trying to guess which industry you were going to shut down next? Um, <laughs> well, that said, I guess they've given the green light, buy stocks or, you, or we'll kill you. Uh, so, uh, so that's good. We, we know the, the first one in. It's like driving in the fast lane in the highway. You always want to be behind the guy in the M5 that's going to get the ticket. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. China managers heed state call to invest in stocks after stumble. 
Wynn and Sandstock will thrive with Macau overhang fading. Those are ones we've loved for a while, and now they're starting to move. So that's a positive thing. This is by Lawrence Strauss and Barron's. Um, China's personal luxury market grew 36% last year despite COVID-19 challenges. That's good. They can get some of that stuff on Alibaba. <laughs> uh, and then uh, China House's China bill calls for scrutiny of the U.S. investments there. It could be a big deal. Uh, this is for Rejma Kapadia. She tends to be very bearish on China, uh, although she wrote a bullish article this week when, when the stocks were up. Uh, opinion follows trend, but she's worried about this um, um, China, uh, let's see, the America Competes Act, which would move that uh, timeline in for them to meet the U.S. auditing standards from 2024 to 2023, if it gets passed, number one. And number two, it doesn't matter. We've already transferred our shares to Hong Kong shares anyway. It's just more noise. So uh, that's that. Uh, Bank of America actually um, uh, reiterates the buy on Alibaba. They took their price target down to 203 from 209, but um, came out with a bullish uh, upgrade. And then Alibaba's stock is attractive. Morningstar upgraded the stock and went into all the reasons why. Uh, you can read that uh, at their website. Uh, and then Rejma actually had the, a positive article, which was surprising. She's just been bearish for the last, you know, forever. Uh, and um, she said, watch out for a turnaround in the year of the tiger. And she goes into the easing and most of the pain is in the rearview mirror and the Goldman Sachs report that we've covered in recent weeks. Uh, so it's good to see that opinion follows trend. They're starting to bottom and, you know, more and more people will hop on once they're up 20, 30, 40 percent. Uh, Goldman shrugs off rate hikes to bet on emerging market stocks, emerging market stock valuations, which, by the way, China's 35 percent. Alibaba is one of the biggest weights. So they're basically saying buy China, which they'd said in their other reports about buying China. But emerging market stock valuations are near their lowest level since 2007. Versus U.S. shares, emerging market economies poised for stronger growth in 2022. Uh, and they go, we moved to overweight in emerging markets in November. Uh, looking cheap, good value. Here's the chart that we showed you weeks ago. Uh, emerging market uh, stocks relative to the U.S., cheapest since 2006 and 2007 levels um, with growth picking up because they're easing while we're tightening. So that's all positive. Okay, go where the fish are, stock market and sentiment results. So we went to Key West. This is uh, me with my older daughter, Mimi. Uh, this was one of the barracudas we caught, which was pretty awesome. Uh, almost, you know, almost as tall as Mimi. Um, and um, so last week I took the family down to Key West for a little R&R. Since we only had five days, I tried to pack in as much activity as possible. Parasailing, jet skiing, snorkeling, dolphins, and deep sea fishing. By far... The most fun for me was deep sea fishing, and it was the most successful outing I've ever experienced. I credit my wife, Caitlin, for doing the proper due diligence and hiring the best captain on the island to take it out, take us out. This, is, uh, this was a mutton, mutton snapper right here, big one. Uh, we got that, and these are the two barracudas, and then a bunch of uh, yellowtail snapper, and I don't know, I forget what that one's called, but we're getting it uh, mounted for Annabelle. She wants to put it in her room, so she takes after daddy. Uh, <laughs> um, 
so this was the mutton snapper before then we took it to this awesome sea seaside cafe i think at the anyway it's right on the beach and they cooked it up for us and there's like the same amount on the other side of the french fries you just can't see them uh i did it blackened it was fantastic uh this is her catching it so you see it's interesting these fish look actually really small on the pier look how small that looks and then you actually see how large they are they're enormous i mean and look at the, look at it next to annabelle that's our seven-year-old superstar swimmer uh and then this is a grouper which i don't know why we didn't get this one cooked uh oh it's you can't certain seasons you're not allowed to we had to throw that back and we had to throw the fish, the shark back as there are some fish you can't eat uh because of seasons and different restrictions by the way if you're on the podcast you're going to get cut off in 30 seconds go to hedgefundtips.com scroll down to the video cast you can fast forward the youtube video to minute 60 you will pick up word for word exactly where you left off and you can also go back if you wanted to see some of the images and charts we were talking about uh you might find that helpful but that's where you're going to get the rest of it and we've got probably another 10 minutes of, of important very important stuff to cover actually in this article so you don't want to miss it um okay so captain billy and his partner ryan have a re- 